Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1367, which is entitled, It Never Gawains But It Pours. (laughs) (laughs) Our podcast title is The Green Pod. I am Rob Jam. And Megan McHugh. And what you heard there was some of the soundtrack from the movie The Green Knight. David Lowry mm-hmm. is the director and the composer was Daniel Hart, who's mm. a frequent collaborator for Mr. Lowry. And we are going to be talking about this latest entry in the sometimes sorry, sometimes glorious canon <laughs> of Arthurian-related movies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just to relieve any feelings of doubt and uncertainty and tension, I thought this was a good one. Ah, good. We can add it to the list, which is probably pretty well balanced between good Arthurian adventures and less than good Arthurian adaptations. It's that kind of mixture. But first, Megan has a book that she wants to talk about today, and I'm really fascinated by it because Megan shared a track with me to play on the show, and I really want to know why I'm going to be playing this track. (laughs) Well, it will become pretty apparent quite quickly. So the book I wanted to talk a bit about today is called The Final Girl Support Group. Now, it is a thriller or horror novel. It was released this year, so it's hot off the presses, published by Berkeley, and it is by the author Grady Hendrick. So I'm going to talk a little bit about him in a moment because some of his other titles might be of zero G interest as well. But this particular novel was of interest to me. I kind of knew releases come out and sometimes I'll see them and they'll either, you know, grab my eye or not. And this one did grab my eye because obviously last month, October, there's mixed feelings out there about the Halloween season. But I do think October is a nice opportunity to get into some spooky slasher stories and rewatch horror movies and things like that because that's particularly a genre that I enjoy. And I think studios also agree because we got the new Candyman reboot. Nia DaCosta's film was released. Also, they dropped a trailer for Scream, the new Scream, which is also called Scream, but is technically Scream 5. And the 12th Halloween film a couple of years ago, we saw the continuation of the Halloween franchise with Jamie Lee Curtis, but it deals with her as an older Laurie Strode dealing with trauma and PTSD of what she's been through. And it's an exceptional film in my opinion. And they've just released another called Halloween Kills. And I think this kind of new Halloween story does a lot of the things that this book that we're going to talk about today wanted to do as well. And you'll see very soon why Halloween's kind of relevant here. So Grady Hendrix, the author, let's dig into a little bit into his past books before we talk about the Final Girl Support Group. So his books have brilliant covers and they're very genre, they're fantastic kind of genre adventures. So he's written a book last year called The Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is a supernatural story set in the South about a suburban book club of older Southern women who end up protecting their neighbourhood from a fanged newcomer, (laughs) 
mysterious stranger. And it's kind of pitched. I saw a few descriptions of it as fried green tomatoes and steel magnolias meets Dracula. So <laughs> that sounds cool. Uh, there's a TV series for that in development. He's a bit of a darling in Hollywood at the moment. He's also written another novel in 2014 called Horror Store which has a brilliant cover. It's a haunted mall story set in a furniture superstore, very loosely (laughs) concealed to be Ikea, where three employees stay overnight to investigate some strange happenings that have been going on in the store. And that is also going to be a film adaptation as well. And the other book I wanted to mention from Grady Hendrix's back catalogue is My Best Friend's Exorcism, which came out a couple of years back. That's also going to be a film, and it's set in the 80s about two high school best friends and what ensues when one of them seemingly becomes possessed by a demon. So he's very much hitting on all of these big genre tropes. I haven't read any of his other novels. I am interested to try them out. So I'm not sure about the execution and landing on some of those ideas, but I thought some of those titles might also be of interest sure, they yeah. sort of firmly fall in our wheelhouse. So this particular novel, The Final Girl Support Group, is actually going to be turned into a television series itself by Annapurna Pictures. They have the rights at least. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, so let's dig into talking a little bit about this one. So the premise is around final girls, as we might tell from the title. So we follow a group of quote unquote final girls more on them in a minute, who've survived their past horrors and grown up to be older women living with the memories of what they've been through. And to help combat this and process their trauma, they meet once a month with a therapist in a support group and they've done this for 16 years and they've all survived these various recognisable from famous horror film massacres. So, Just a note on Final Girls, if you're not too sure about what that means. So it is the trope in horror or slasher films where the final girl is the last girl standing. So she's the survivor. She'll fight back. Maybe she kills a bad guy or at least cripples them before their inevitable return in the sequel, and she'll avenge her friends and so on. So examples of this would be Sydney Prescott in Scream, probably one of my top horror franchises, Laurie Strode in Halloween, Sally Hardesty in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Nancy Thompson in A Nightmare on Elm Street, and so on and so forth. So inspiration has clearly been taken from some of these key final girls to inspire the characters in this book. There's some ties of naming and so on as well. So we focus on one final girl in particular in the novel, Lynette Tarkington. So she's a little bit more of a, a new fictional one that's been created for this novel. And we see a bit of how she lives her life as a grown woman. So her paranoia and the measures she takes to not be a victim again. So she survived her horror story, which happened about 20 years ago. She was a teenager at the time and she's still living with the after effects and she also has a lot of measures in place that she does routinely, obsessively, to avoid being followed or cornered or attacked. She's hyper aware of her surroundings, things like that. So she has all these precautions and protections in place and you can tell quite quickly from her inner monologue that she has some emotional stuff as well that uh, she's not quite coping with. So All the final girls that meet in this support group have gone down different coping paths. So some of them denials, there's substance abuse, there's activism. And the one thing they all sort of have in common besides their past trauma is these sessions with their therapist, Dr. Carol. They're just trying to piece together their lives, mix success as mentioned, and just, you know, keep surviving. 
So one day, of course, we don't have a book unless something happens. One of them is found murdered and it becomes apparent that someone is out to finish off these famous final girls because they are notorious in the media and um, someone would like to keep the horror movie going, so to speak. So Lynette has to leave the safety of the life she's tried to create and she's sort of forced back into action in order to survive and figure out what's going on. So that's the final girl support group. The interesting part of the premise is that the plot and book are set years after what the traditional horror films cover. So we see the final girls after the proverbial cameras have stopped rolling. So the big question the book wants to pose is what happens to these girls after the slasher film ends? What are their lives like? What would their psychological and emotional states be? But it also does want to make some comments on the commodification of trauma and death and how the public loves to eat up a story and juicy details of someone else's horrific experience. But that said, it's not necessarily a lesson book with lots to say. It reminds me a little bit of one of your other favourite books, the Stephen King, It. Yes. With the kids growing up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so you're right. And also maybe Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sure. So, no, I think that's the thing. It's this kind of cut to years later, you know, as adults kind of thing. And it does also want to be a thriller at the end of the day too. So there are elements of murder and chaos and a bit of misdirection in the plot and twists and turns. So thoughts on the book personally. So within the idea of final girls and horror tropes in general, there's a lot of interesting theory around that and feminist theory. And this book does scrape the surface of that, but never really fully explores some of the ideas or kind of brings them to fruition in the plot. So it has a lot of ideas that it never quite get off the ground and it wants to make a bunch of points, but never actually quite makes them. But that being said, I did want to read it, even though I sort of saw the ending coming a little bit. It did grab me and it's quite fun, especially if you are someone familiar with horror movies and a bit of a horror movie buff. You can pick up little details here and there and it's quite absorbing and pacey as well. So I think another factor in my personal lack of engagement in some ways was that none of the characters are pretty particularly likable, but I think if I'm giving him credit, it is possibly the point that you're meant to empathize with what they've endured and conquered and they don't have to be likable per se to be worthy of survival. So I think that that's a bit of an interesting idea as well, that, you know, they're not these wonderful people and that's not why they survived. It's because they were you know, full of grit or what have you. So I think to Lynette, we do view the world through her eyes. So we get a decent grasp on her character and where her mental kind of workings, but none of the other characters are that fleshed out, <laughs> so to speak. And they're, <laughs> they're quite stereotypical and they're defined yeah. by the massacres. But again, I think that's okay you know, there's not much done to bond the characters, but it's also, again, they're bonded by this trauma they've all shared and their mutual understanding of what they've all been through. So this idea that they don't like each other, but they understand each other, I I kind of like that. It doesn't have to necessarily be about the joys of female friendship. It's about horrific murder (laughs) and the way people can survive and relate to other people who've had a similar experience. So overall, 
I did enjoy reading the book. I think it's a decent thriller. I think if you enjoy slasher films, you will get a bit out of it. It's a bit of a a good, solid horror, fun read. I think it's nothing wildly memorable. It does have a very good pace and is quite cinematic, so I'm not surprised that they're adapting it. Uh, You know, it will translate quite well to the screen, be that movie, TV, whatever ends up happening. There are obviously, as you might expect, some gruesome descriptions in there and uh, he does make good use of some common slasher tropes and, you know, trots out some good set pieces. Lynette's massacre is a Christmas massacre. You know, he's playing into, it's it's all a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think that's maybe it is that it's it's a fan's book, but he's trying to make some bigger points about trauma and the commodification of people's experiences, which he he does half make. So I'd be interested to hear other people's thoughts on the book as well. I think there's enough in here to make it a worthy read. Uh, but as I mentioned, I wouldn't say it's one of the, the top books, genre books that I'd necessarily recommend. But if you're a horror fan, I, I certainly would. And Yeah, it was kind of just a fun October read for me. So that was the Final Girls Support Group. That one's come out this year by Grady Hendrix. And so it's very easy to find in ebook or, you know, hard copy book as well. And I thought in honor of said book that we might go out with (laughs) the track that so intrigued Rob, because I do think this is iconic film and score, but in honor of the final girls and, you know, one of my final girl favorites, Laurie Strode, we'll go with the Halloween theme by John Carpenter from the Halloween film. Ah, yes. Being chased by people wearing William Shatner masks for decades. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Hi, this is Jim Beaver. I play Bobby Singer on the TV series Supernatural, and you're listening to 3RRRFM0G. Idgits. That was, of course, the iconic Halloween theme with a bit extra underneath uh, by John Carpenter, and that one is from the newer Halloween, so it has been added a bit of a modern beat (laughs) there as well. Still iconic. More face than Myers, as they say. (laughs) Oh, what a headbanging version that one was. Mm. <laughs> I could just imagine that being played in a, a doofmobile. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Now, onwards to something else that is also set at Christmas. Mm-hmm. Mm, the Green Knight. Mm-hmm. Streaming on Amazon Prime. Okay. Now, when I was doing English literature back in the Middle Ages, <laughs> I read J.R.R. Tolkien's translation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which mm-hmm. is a 14th century romance of chivalry in Middle English. Now, nobody knows exactly who wrote it, mm-hmm. although Tolkien did this particular translation, and it's sort of Chaucerian in time setting, mm-hmm. and it's an Arthurian story, so it's to do with the matter of Britain. Now, I've often said that the best way to do a Arthur cinematic universe mm-hmm. or a matter of Britain cinematic universe would be to do it as a series of movies about the individual knights and then bring them together as the companions of the round table rather like the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And this movie would actually function quite well mm. as a component film in something like that. 
although I don't actually particularly care for their interpretation of Arthur and Guinevere as right. king and queen. Okay. But that's all right. That's not their fault. They're, They're not, to the side. <laughs> that's to the side. Okay. So we've had a few bad Arthurian things. <laughs> Have we ever? Five, six years and some good ones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this one falls, I think, squarely into the area of good mm. or goodly, as the case may be. Now, this one is basically the story of, and it's quite well known, but I'll just run you through the synopsis, mm-hmm. chop it up into little bits for you. So you've got Sir Gawain or Sir Gawain, as they call him in this one. Mm-hmm. Now, he's not actually a, a knight mm-hmm. in this particular adaptation. He is still a squire, and he wants to become a knight someday. But he's not a perfect squire. He's not a a wonderful person. He's a bar crawler, a bit of a ladies' man. And in this interpretation, Sir Gawain is the wastrel son of Morgan Le Fay, Mm -hmm. the sorceress. And she is the sister of King Arthur Mm -hmm. now, In other parts of the legend, she would go on to bear Arthur's child. So there's that whole Mordred thing. Yeah, it's the incestuous difficulty that sits at the heart of Arthurian (laughs) stories. But not this one. It's not really to do with that. Now, that means, incest aside, (laughs) that means that he is in the line to be heir to the throne because Arthur has no legitimate children. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's just been kind of elevated into the court. Arthur doesn't right. get on all that well with Morgan Le Fay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And now they're bringing up Gawain as kind of a yeah. uh, maybe a, a future king because mm. not a once in future king. This is set at the end of Camelot, basically. Okay. So Arthur and Guinevere are quite old mm-hmm. and – Jaded, maybe said all the big wars that they've been fighting against the Saxons are over. Let's face it, everybody's sitting around having one too many boring Christmas feasts. <laughs> and and this is the whole essence of the story, that they would very much like someone to come and present them with a, a new tale of wonder. Right. They're getting a bit bored in their retirement, so to speak, and so they've got this, right, okay, we're about due for a loose unit to come in and shake things up. Yes, you've got to have some kind of catalyst that will change things. Mm. And in this case, it is the Green Knight of the title. And pretty much everyone else who's adapted this has gone for the nature theme, green. Uh, They developed that way further here than I've seen before. Now, we've talked about this poem and the movies that have been spun off it before. So I won't go too much into the other adaptations, but probably the two most notable ones are by director Stephen Weeks, who did Gawain and the Green Knight in 1973, and then he remade that in 1984 as Sword of the Valiant, The Legend of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. And that second one had Miles O'Keefe being a very vapid sort of Gawain and Sean Connery being a perfect Green Knight you know, doing that whole uh, essence of being the primal forest um, spirit sort of I thing. I see. Like a father nature type of deal. Yeah, kinda. yeah. Well, in a way also being Santa Claus because this oh. has got some 
remnant echoes of that particular mythology as well. There's a lot mm-hmm. of things packed into this, hmm. and it's why it's one of the seemingly more accessible Arthurian tropes, really. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the Green Knight comes riding in. Since Gawain has no real story of his own to enliven things yet, he's, he's too gormless, basically. <laughs> too busy uh, with his head in a pint. Yes, he is. Actually, his uh, his mother says to him when he rolls in one night, where have you been? He says, I've been to Mass all night. And she sniffs and she says, well, you smell like you've been at Mass all night. What have you been doing? Drinking the sacrament. You know, it's like, okay, fair enough. So the Green Knight comes in and it's a magnificent costume too, a little bit like Treebeard. Oh, nice, yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, carrying a great axe. And he has a challenge for any one in the court, hmm. they will be allowed to take the axe and take a swipe at him with that axe. Right. And then the proviso is that in one year's time, the person who's hacked at him has to stand a similar blow from oh. him. Oh, now, no. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. So this is kind of like squid games for knights. <laughs> <laughs> We're onto a theme here. Yeah. We're onto a theme here. Obviously, what you want to do, because, you know, these people are seasoned fighters and warriors and soldiers, and they're used to a bit of a rough trade in terms of Christmas jolly japes. So, you know, it's obvious that if you're going to take a swipe at this guy with this bloody great axe, that you're probably going to want to make sure that you knock his head off. Right. Because you don't want to have to pay your dues in a year. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Like I said, rough humour. And, of course, that's what happens. But as we all know, (laughs) it doesn't take. Mm -hmm. Ah, Before you can say, pop my head back on, the Green Knight is up and chuckling and saying, right, well, laddie, in a year's time, Mm. you and me. See you then. And, of course, we know who's the person who stepped up. Oh, yes, our old mate. <laughs> Go on. Maybe, maybe he shouldn't have spent all the previous night at Mass. Maybe he should have paid a little bit more attention to why the senior knights, although none of them are cowardly, mm, didn't a- actually hung back a bit. Yeah, right. Oh, <laughs> Ex- okay. Experience. Now, we're led to believe that somebody else put the Green Knight up to this. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting trying to work out why, and it does make sense later on as you figure it all out. I'm not going to go into that, though. All right, so that's the setup for the Green Knight. So let's have a track to offset the horror. <laughs> as <laughs> the it headless were, horror. Before we can say Sleepy Hollow. One of the themes of this quite gloriously complicated and unusual film is there's a collision between the Christian religion, mm-hmm. which is what Arthur and Guinevere and, and the Knights of Camelot are following, and the old ways. Ah, it's always the old ways rearing their head. Yeah. Or in this case, picking up their head and trotting off of it under their arm. And in that respect, Daniel Hart, the composer who we heard before at the start of the show who gave us a track called Excalibur mm-hmm. about the king's famous sword, he has – given us a very nice mixture of the music so that we get a a sense of the Christianity theme Mm -hmm. and also the paganism theme. So we'll go with the first of those, and this is Algantz Ol Kals Pazua, featuring the soprano, I think, uh, Emma Tring, and this is from the Green Knight 
motion picture soundtrack album. Translated, it means uh, the ants, the god of my ancestor. This is the ill-made mute, or rather, this is Cecilia Dart Thornton, author of the ill-made mute, saying unto thee, forsooth, thou art verily listening to Zero G Gravity Free Radio on three triple R one hundred two point seven FM. That's Fantasy Madness. Yay, verily, there with a track called Agants or Carl's Pazua featuring Emma Tring by Daniel Hart, composer of the Green Knight soundtrack, a frequent collaborator with Mr. Lowry, the director of this film. I think he also worked on Pete's Dragon mm. and Ghost Story, amongst other things, and also <laughs> was part of a band called Polyphonic Spree. Ah. One of the many members. Which opened for David Bowie at one stage. That would have been a time, wouldn't it? Yeah, no pressure there. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, they were up to it, I think. (laughs) Yeah, and the track translates as the god of my ancestors. And that emphasises the Christian element of the movie The Green Knight, one of the tropes there, the collision of Christianity and paganism Mm, mm. in the ancient world. So... You can find David Lowry's The Green Knight on Amazon Prime. All right, so you've got poor old Gawain mm-hmm. or Garwin <laughs> off on his quest. And, you know, these are the kind of films that they sent up in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Mm. But they sent it up as an inside job, basically, with uh, Terry Jones and everybody else in there quite steeped in medievalism. So that's why it's so much fun. But this one is relatively straightly done, except there's this lovely undercurrent of humour. Ah, okay. So it's not all darkness. No, no. It runs through it and you think, practically gallops in places and you think, oh, hey, that was actually funny and I didn't realise it until I stopped and thought about it. Now, clearly the director has been quite taken with 1980s fantasy films. You can see it. It's written all over it, Mm. including things like the lettering styles and just the cinematography and Mm -hmm. the framing Mm -hmm. of shots and and just the whole feel of the thing. So he has actually been looking at things like Mr. Weeks's uh, Sword of the Valiant and Willow. Oh, yeah. Most particularly, of course, John Borman's Excalibur. Yes, I was going to say, I, yeah, yeah, okay, all right. So that's kind of the energy that we've got, the atmosphere for this one. Yeah, yeah. And I think they've really captured some of the feeling of Le Morte d'Arthur, Sir Thomas Mallory's great seminal work about the matter of Britain, in that it feels like they've got that little vignette of mm. the night travelling through different scenarios. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and I love that. In a way, it is a kind of a medieval squid game. (laughs) It's got that episodic nature to it, challenges. Hero's journey and so on. Foolish Mm. hero sometimes, but we get there, yeah. So, of course, we've got the coming of age of this young hero played Mm. by Dev Patel. Dev Patel. I've seen him in a lot lately, much to my pleasure. Yeah. And he is starring as Garwin here, mm-hmm. and he's playing opposite Alicia Vikander. Mm, I like and, her too. And Joel Edgerton. Oh, an Aussie. Yeah, indeed, and Ralph Innocent as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So, Dev, I've seen him in Slumdog Millionaire, of course. Yeah, as have we all. Mm, but he's also in uh, Neil Blomkamp's 2015 movie Chappie. Oh, I don't think I actually saw Chappie. 
Mm. It's an excellent film. I didn't like it as much as, as some of his other science fiction films, yeah. but it's still got some chops there. Yeah, I mean, it's no District 9, but... Mm. He's in um, Lion as well, and, uh-huh. oh, what's that more recent one? Um, Hotel Mumbai. Ah, uh, yep. Mm-hmm. And has, of course, taken the iconic role of David Copperfield in oh. the personal history of David Copperfield. There you go. But yeah, I actually think he's great in this. It's a sterling performance. He wears the armour well, and in this case it's chainmail. And it's actually quite good-looking kit. They've I looked at it in close-up a couple of times, and it's riveted. That's always a good sign. I was going to say, you've always got a sharp eye for the costumes in these things, and did they stand up to scratch here or...? Well, it's funny you should say the word scratch because he's mostly not wearing padding under that mail. Oh, that's yes, okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, you know, and that's really a thing that you actually want to do if you actually want to survive a blow, mm-hmm, Not mm-hmm. never mind not being cut by it. It's the impact, you know. So, mm. oh, well, you know, I, I get it. <laughs> the costumes otherwise are, are quite a bit of fun in this film. They've done a lot of interesting stuff that – they feel like they've taken it from medieval manuscripts, mm-hmm. particularly King Arthur and Guinevere's crowns, which form sun-like halos around the head. And I'm sure you've seen that in uh, manuscripts, mm-hmm. pages and all sorts of illustrations, tapestries and so on. Their costume designer was uh, Melgosia Turnzanska, and so they've kind of used some South American influences on the robes and the garments that they wear. cool. Yeah, but also doing that whole Western Christendom thing. Mm-hmm. I thought they were very workmanlike in their approach to that. It just sells it. Yeah, I'm feeling the vibe here. The cinematography is absolutely stunning. Mm. Andrew Droz Palermo, who's also another person who's worked with David Lowry before. Yep. He's done a, a great job here in framing shots. Like I was watching it and you could see paintings. Mm in this. Yeah, right. So it's really painstakingly kind of set up some good shots and Mm. made it quite artistic. Yeah. Well, it feels like it's in period, those Renaissance paintings where you've got the strong light and shade effects, you know, often candlelight, lanterns, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And he's duplicated that in here with the lighting people as well. Yeah. And that really sold it again to me, along with Daniel Hart's music, as you heard before. Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny when you do Arthurian stuff, in this case it's like 14th century poem adapted to this, but you've also got look, maybe like the the kind of possible historical pseudo-reality of the earlier times, mm. you know, so the Dark Ages, and then all the, the other story elements that come into this from previous myths and legend cycles so very old irish tales as well so because that whole beheading thing that's uh i was going to say it had legs but maybe not so many (laughs) (laughs) but you know that goes back to Mm. irish stories as well and Mm. speaking of ireland of course they filmed this in ireland and and they keep choosing wet places to film sir gawain and the green knight because storms feature in it (laughs) so it's all part of the moodiness right yeah and if you're going to find a place that's damp, well, 
you know, so. You know, you mentioned the cinematography and kind of all of that being quite strong. I'm just looking at some of his back catalogue as well, and I hadn't realised that this was the same director who did the films Ain't Them Body Saints and A Ghost Story. They're not genre, really. A Ghost Story is. Good point, good point. Yeah, they've got that moody energy, and I think it's nice that he's managed to pair that with doing something a little bit more mythological and hopefully it will drip into his next project, which looks to be Peter Pan and Wendy, Mm. which I'd be very keen to see him tackle, especially since it sounds like that he did a decent job with the Arthurian story. So, Which ain't easy. Yeah, I mean, Transformers couldn't do it, so. (laughs) Guy Ritchie didn't have a hope. I thought that one, yeah, no, that was pretty weak link in the chain as well, wasn't it? Yeah, actually, I take that back. I did have hopes for the Guy Ritchie one. I've I've well, liked some of his films. I, I like the spirit that he brings to those. Well, he did well with the Holmes adaptation, like going in his Sherlock Holmes. I think that was a really strong vision. So I, I too, was hoping for a bit more from his King Arthur. But, oh, well, mm. can't have everything. And Joel Edgerton, I also wanted to shout mm. out to this, mostly because, I mean, you know, we've got all his sorts of Star Wars sort of backstory and uh, The Great Gatsby and Zero Dark Thirty and all those other mm, things. Mm, mm. But in particular, he actually has played Gawain himself oh. in the 2004 King Arthur movie. Right. And I thought that's just a lovely little sort of yeah. echo because he doesn't play Gawain in this. He plays mm. one of Gawain's challenges. Hmm. Now, the tropes in this, as we said before, the beheading game, Mm -hmm. the conflict between Christianity and paganism. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the director is definitely making a statement that uh, Christianity in the Arthurian court at this time has become not exactly decadent, but the opposite, almost straight-laced and and sort of vapid. Yeah. They've lost their mojo. Yeah, right. Okay. (laughs) Whereas, you know, you've got the vigorous green knight sort of element, the Mm the primal pagan forest god, that sort of thing. Although they've actually gotten fairly uh, nuanced with that. They've explained the whole resonance of the hue of green. Oh, okay. And they also make a point that it's also the colour of rot and decay. True, and like mould and things. Exactly. And there is dampness, which it sounds like this film is a bit damp in a good way. Yes. Alicia Vikander, she does a very good monologue in this film about that and it's mm. mesmerizing i was totally riveted by that oh she's a great actress i really think she brings a lot to to all the films she's in i think well she was great in uh, ex machina as the robot mm. and also in tomb raider yeah i think she's a good lara croft personally and i believed yeah. her because she did a bit of work on the physique and stuff and mm. yeah i was i would have liked to see a second tomb raider but who knows yeah and do you remember her in um the man from uncle yes that was a fun one wasn't it i think we both enjoyed that that was a bit of a ride Mm. now look there's a lot of other people in this (laughs) sarita cowdhury Mm -hmm. and she has been in uh spike lee's she hate me and lady in the water and she was a in the hunger games Mockingjay oh. Part 2. <laughs> We've got Sean Harris playing King Arthur, and he has been in so many things, including Prometheus. Yeah. Uh, I try not to mention that. The but, ill-fated you know. Prometheus. And as the Green Knight this time, not Sean Connery, but Ralph Ineson, and we've seen him before in Game of Thrones, where he plays 
Dagmar Cleftjaw. Oh. <laughs> but you may be more familiar with him, Megan, as Amicus Caro in the Harry Potter films. Oh. Mm. Not sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I first saw him actually playing Chris Finch in The Office. <laughs> so it's like a long time ago for that one. And another person to shout out for here is Erin Kellyman playing a character called Winifred. Yeah. We know her from Solo, but we really know her as the teenage terrorist in the Disney Plus series of Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Absolutely. Very distinctive role for her. Mm. Half of the people in this have been in Game of Thrones. Kate Dickey is playing Queen Guinevere, and she was in uh, Got as well. So, I mean, if you've got a partially British (laughs) cast, they're all been in Game of Thrones or Harry Potter, haven't they? (laughs) Yeah. So one other cast member who actually has a voice sort of credit is Patrick Duffy. Ah. He's voicing an animal in this, and – Go way back, I think. I never saw him once playing this role, but it was like he was like in Dallas. He was <laughs> one of the characters for that. But I did watch him in The Man from Atlantis, oh. where he played an aquatic submariner, basically. So, you know, there's lots of stuff in here to look out for in terms of the acting. I feel like it's mannered in places mm. to try and access the the cadence and the tone and the rhythm. Mm. of the poem, which is actually very special. If you've ever heard it read in Middle English, it's got this hypnotic, mesmerising quality to it. And I thought, yeah, I I know what they're doing. And the director has done video poems before. Okay. At least one. So he's got an ear and an eye for this, and I feel Mm. like – Everything's coming together in this, like a well-mixed console in the studio, you know, (laughs) to produce this strong, evocative feeling of the whole poems, not only the tone but the tropes as well, which is what the actual 14th century poem has going for it. It's one of those things where it pulls the reader or the listener, Mm. as it were, in and makes them identify and feel Mm. for this young knight going through all of these challenges and trials that are going to basically lay down the foundations for his future knighthood mm. yeah. and perhaps even further. Yeah. All right, so let's have another track here. And this is a, a little bit of a short track, and I just wanted to play this one because it's just got this nice, again, a nice feel to it. Again, very evocative, and it <laughs> tells the story. It's called Gawain Runs or Garwin Runs and Runs. <laughs> featuring uh, Katina Vindelev. And again, this is by Daniel Hart, and it's from the soundtrack album of The Green Knight. Hi, this is Michael Palin, and right now you are lucky enough to be listening to 102.7 3 R FM. <laughs> now, that was Gawain, runs and runs. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Hart there, composer from The Green Knight. The Green Knight is streaming on Amazon Prime. And Michael Palin just chipped in there, and of course he played one of the knights in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It all comes together. It does, doesn't it? And that's actually another thing that the Green Knight does very well. The symbology is very tight. They correctly understand the link between the girdle or the belt that one of the characters gives to Gawain along the road. Mm. And the pentangle, which if you draw it out the way that you do it in medieval manuscript, is like a continuous 
circling sort of item. Okay. Yeah, so there's actually a lot in this film, and I found it extremely rich as somebody who's marinated in the matter of Britain. I particularly like the way that the director, David Lowry, does signify an underline that we're seeing what's essentially a vision. Okay. And he gives you a, a clue with a 360-degree pan so okay. that you get this feeling that you're a little bit unshackled from reality. And there's some great moments when he does that. And that actually helps you decipher a few things in the film that might otherwise be mm. a bit enigmatic. It sounds it actually very amazing. clever. It is extremely clever, I thought. Uh, the Green Knight, it is on Amazon Prime. And it was one of those films that was supposed to come out at the mm. cinema. But sounds like it would have played kind of nicely on the big screen too, so that's a bit of a shame, but hopefully it will find an audience on streaming. I would almost pay to go to a special cinema that just played films that we missed out. I know. On the big screen during the yeah. pandemic. Especially this one, because there are some magnificent images in this film. Does it all make sense? Yeah. It is one of those films afterwards where you're going to be sitting around going, what did that mean? Why did Gawain do that? What happened there? Does that mean that this – was that real? You know. Okay. So, Thought-provoking. It sounds – I mean, it's a, the halo glowing report from you really, Rob. From what I can gather, it sounds like, you know, the cinematography is there, the kind of understanding of the Arthurian legend is there, and the acting is up to par, and it's also an enjoyable and engaging ride. So am I right to say it's a year from Zero G rating or – what are we thinking? As they would say, I, absolutely. This is one of those movies that I'm thinking, yeah, it's not for everybody, I can tell you that. It's got a mood to it. Okay. Could some people perceive it as slow or is there enough plot and action going on? Possibly. Lowry is a director who's unafraid to give you lingering shots. Yes, to hold a moment and things like that. He's very keen on on that. Okay, mm. interesting. So yeah. it's not like the Guy Ritchie King Arthur. This is a bit more of a pensive take on mm. Pendragon Civ. And it's a complicated thing judging Arthurian films because <laughs> there are so many let's be honest, there are so many questing beasts of films out there that you just go, no. And sometimes <laughs> they can stand on their own without being that accurate or, you know, like they're still good, but, you know, maybe not in the Arthurian kind of canon, but, well, it sounds uh, like this one ticks a lot of boxes. Yeah, it does indeed, for me at least. Where does The Green Knight sit amongst Arthurian film and television? Well, it's on par with Robert Bresson's 1974 Lancelot du Lac, though not as deliberately emotionally detached or, for that matter, as bloody. And its gorgeous cinematography wouldn't be out of place in John Borman's iconic 1981 masterpiece, Excalibur. It's certainly more engaging and accomplished than Stephen Weeks' 1973 take on the poem, although watching Gawain and the Green Knight again recently, I do regard that as being earnest of intent and actually quite watchable. And it's certainly more engagingly acted than Weeks' remake of his own movie, Sword of the Valiant, although nowhere near as stylized as Eric Romer's 1978 movie, Percival, it does capture the feel of the poem in the same way that that movie gave us a sense of being caught up in a medieval passion play. The Green Knight is available to stream on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. All right, so 
that's about it for Zero G for today. And I will reserve some of these tracks to play over in future because they're really quite distinctive. They are very evocative. I do think it would be nice to retain this mood moving forward. Mm. Now, the song I want to play to go out with was on the Underworld movie soundtrack. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Vampires and Werewolves, oh my. And that was remixed for that. But it goes back to the early 1990s. <laughs> it's from David Bowie's reality album. <laughs> and, and often when we talk about King Arthur, we'll just play uh, David Bowie doing, you know, There Was a Boy from uh, Moulin Rouge. But in this case, which, of course, references King Arthur and so on. But we'll do Bring Me the Disco King, <laughs> which I've promised myself and have succeeded in not calling Bring Me the Head of the Disco King. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll go out with that today. All right, that's about it for Zero G for today. Thank you to Kayla Larson, our podcaster, and thank you, Megan. Thank you, Rob. Joe Brunatic coming up next with Astral Glamour. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast at Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. <laughs>